second Sunday in a series of, on the essence of the different parts of the Bible. Last week, we considered the essence of the law of Torah. Today, we look at the story of the call of the prophet Isaiah as we consider the essence of the Bible prophetic material. Those wishing to do the following and reading are in the Pew Bible, page 778 from the Old Testament. Let us listen for the Holy Spirit is what is saying to us today. In the year the king of Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lawfully, and the hem of the robe filled with the temple. Sheriffs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings, and two they covered their faces. With the two covered their feet, and with the two they flew. And one called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook to vo at voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. Am I lost? For I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a, a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. Then one serp flew to me, holding a live coal that had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The serp touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blocked out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I sing, and who will go before us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to the people, keep listening, but not, do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull, and stop your ears, and shut your eyes, so that you, they may not look with their eyes, and listen with their ears, and comprehend with their minds, and turn and be healed. May God bless you for all the hearing and understanding. Have you heard of this show? I've heard of it. I, I hadn't uh, hadn't seen it. Still haven't seen it. But I was intrigued by the uh, intrigued by the title, and so I looked it up and found just this basic. I think they call it a treatment um, of what the show is about. God friended me is an uplifting drama about an outspoken atheist whose life is turned upside down when he receives a friend request on social media from God and unwittingly becomes an agent of change in the lives and destinies of others around him. Make you want to watch it? I did. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. Like it? Yeah. yeah. Uh-oh. We've got an A- minus and a C plus over here for ratings. I think. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, well, you know, the thing is, even our secular culture can be intrigued by this idea of a direct contact from God. 
and the disruption that that can cause and the things that it can do and the differences it might make, you know, uh, hilarity ensues, tune in on Tuesday, you know? Uh, uh, there is this idea, this idea that the voice of God can somehow directly intervene. Um, we have started this series, as, as uh, Eileen said, uh, about trying to just pinpoint an essence, the essence maybe in some cases, of certain sections of scripture. We looked at the law last week and talked about how love of God, love of neighbor is essential uh, both to the Jewish understanding of the books of the law and also to how Jesus frames it as well and extends what our idea of neighbor is. Um, and today we think about prophets. Um, of everybody in the Bible, prophets are the ones who are most likely to receive, to have heard from God in a way that they understand to be direct. And Isaiah is one of those who recounts his experience and his, what we would call his call, his vocation, uh, the direct request of God, who says to him, whom shall I send? And who will go? But, as you heard, the passage builds up to that moment of call and then moves beyond it. There is more going on here than just that voice, than just that contact. Isaiah has an encounter with the presence of God. It is an overwhelming encounter, an overwhelming experience. Isaiah has been critical of temple worship when it is separated from justice. He has said so in chapter 1. Nonetheless, he is in the temple. He is there, uh, one assumes, as part of worship and has this experience of seeing God enthroned, directly present, with a hymn uh, that fills uh, the entire space, attended by seraphs. And as you hear them describe, these seraphs are not the stuff of Victorian postcards, right? We've made them these lovely, feathery uh, creatures that, you know, you send out at Christmas time. Uh, they, uh, have, they have the, the, these bizarre creatures with six wings. And they cover their faces so they, they are shielded from looking at the direct presence of God because it is so overwhelming. Uh, and they fly with a pair, and uh, uh, with the third pair, they are modest. They cover their feet, which is a Hebrew euphemism for other body parts. Um, and it is this incredible thing that rattles the foundations of the temple. Literally, but I would suggest figuratively as well, there is something about the presence of God that rattles religion. Religion tends to think that it can box God up, you see, uh, in a temple, in a church, in a doctrine, in a practice, in an identity, in a tribe, whatever it is. And God inevitably rattles that foundational understanding, shakes it up a little bit. That is the experience that... Isaiah has, and it leads him to a sense of confession because he understands that direct exposure to the presence of God 
uh, is usually, for most people, overwhelmingly fatal. For those of you who remember the exploding heads in Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's that, you see. For those of you who don't, oh well. Uh, so he, he issues a confession. He's facing this reality that is completely overwhelming and arguably threatening to his existence. And he says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. I, I, I've said this before. Some of you will say, oh, he's saying it again. Uh, uh, the, the, I think the, one of the greatest things about Western civilization in general and about uh, American culture in the particular is that we value the individual. We lift up the individual. We accord rights to the individual and responsibilities. We acknowledge that the individual, we are about individualism, and that is a tremendous, important, central thing about who we are as Westerners and Americans. Best thing. And I've also said the worst thing about Western culture in general, and American culture in particular, is individualism. Because the attention that we give to individuals often, not always, often leads us to neglect our collective uh, selves, our community selves, our larger selves, our connections so that we think a lot about individual rights and responsibilities, we think less about collective uh, rights, collective responsibilities. But the Bible is very clear that we have an individual identity in this world and before God, but we also have a collective responsibility. And there is such thing as individual guilt, and there is such thing as collective guilt of just being part of a larger group that is, uh, in one way or another, uh, out of line with what God would intend. It can seem unfair to us, because collective guilt can also impact innocent members of that larger group. But it reflects a reality, right? We see it in the world right now. Environmental degradation impacts people who are arguably uh, less guilty, more. Uh, environmental de degradation impacts the poor more than the rich. It impacts people of color more than white people. It impacts animals who have no responsibility for it. We see that in Australia right now, right? And yet it is a matter of collective guilt. It is something that human beings have collectively managed to cause or contribute to. Isaiah acknowledges that he is individually uh, guilty, unclean, unworthy, unpresentable, culpable but that he is also part of a collective guilt, a collective lack of order, a collective skewed priority. And it troubles him to be part of that mutual, that, that dual rather, dual reality before the presence of God. But, at divine initiative, there is a cleansing, right? One of those weird six-winged things brings a coal from the altar and touches it to Isaiah's lips 
and spiritually cauterizes his spiritual wound. Um, and the verdict is issued, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. We, uh, we often think of burning in the Bible as punishment and as eternal. Um, one of the most conservative scholars I know uh, asserted to me in a rather convincing fashion that burning is almost always not punishment, but purifying. Uh, uh, removing the dross from, burning the dross away from metal. Uh, purging from something impure, the impurities. So because burning is purging, then we get the idea of purgatory, right? Um, it is not permanent, it is not always punishment, it is rather a purging, a purifying, a burning off of that which is impure. And it is not necessarily permanent. It is redemptive. It brings that which is less than to the place where it is whole. But it indicates to us that redemption is not easy. Redemption is not painless. The process that brings us back to uh, right existence can involve uh, pain and difficulty. We are slow to surrender our impurities. We are slow to surrender those things in our lives that can block us from our experience of God and what God wants for us. But at God's initiative, Isaiah's, uh, the things that would block God, uh, Isaiah from experiencing the presence of God are burned away, seared away, cauterized at God's initiative. And then, uh, because Isaiah can stand to receive it, the call comes. Who will go and whom shall I send? And Isaiah is able to respond, to confirm the call with his own response. As he says, here am I, send me. Truth is, clergy have tried to co-opt this particular image, this particular verse. Some of you know the hymn that is based on this, right? Here I am, Lord. Um, uh, we like to think that we have a vocation, that we have a call from God. I, I went to an ordination service once where that, the song was sung, and, uh, uh, but uh, the verse was sung by, by a friend of the, the person who was being ordained. And then at the dramatic moment when the chorus began, she stood up and in this remarkably off-key voice saying, Here I am, Lord! Because vocation was all about well, in that moment, her, but, but because vocation, uh, so often ministers think, is all about us. Um, but vocation is that thing that specifically comes to some people in some particular uh, callings, but it is also an aspect of all our lives, all our lives of faith. The voice isn't always so explicit as it is with Isaiah. But I hope that you have had, and I know that some of you have expressed, that place in your lives where you have raised your hand and said, here I am, because you felt a sense of vocation. For many of you, that's vocation within family. 
for many of you, it is that place uh, of vocation within the church where you feel called to fill certain roles within the community of faith. For many of you, I hope uh, all of you, it is that place where occupation, what takes up your time, becomes vocation, what you feel called to. Right? Uh, but I know, I have heard from many of you that you have it. Uh, I hope that all of us are working towards that sense of, I am doing, in family, in church, in occupation, in all of the above, in some of the above, I am doing what I think, what I believe, what I hope God has called me to. All of us can in some way access that moment where we say, here I am. Send me. Unfortunately, it doesn't end there. Uh, I'll tell you the truth. Usually when, when I have this passage read, I don't keep going. Because the rest of it is, is, well, we don't always want to go there. But it does continue because Isaiah is then given content. He is given complications. He is given uh, a command to say certain things. It would be lovely and dramatic if we could just end there. You know, God calls, and uh, this wonderful person uh, in this amazing situation says, Here am I, send me. But inevitably, in these call stories, God uh, gets specific. We see it in the story of Elijah, in Jeremiah, in Amos, in Micah, in the story of Dr. King, in the story, I believe, of Dr. Barber, that uh, there are particulars. And inevitably, the preacher is given targets who may not want to be targeted. God tells Isaiah to do this. Stop up their ears and shut their eyes. That's not usually what you expect from somebody who's speaking on God's behalf, is it? You expect somebody speaking on God's behalf to open up ears, right? And to open up eyes so that people can hear things differently and see things differently, right? But Isaiah is told, no, 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 no. Stop up their ears. Shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds. Confuse things a little bit. Why? <sighs> Confuse them so that they will not turn and be healed. Does that sound right? Does that sound like a message from God? Does that sound like what you want to hear? I, I think this is the first time I've ever, in preaching on this text a few times over the course of the years, invited people to hear verses 9 and 10. And frankly, I'm staying away from verses 11 and 12. Here's the deal. God understands that the people have gotten to a place where there will be consequences. And he is saying to Isaiah, speak to them in such a way that they don't get the opportunity to avoid those consequences. Now, if we're going to be honest, when we are feeling a little self-righteous, we like to see people get their consequences, don't we? We like to see somebody who has done wrong 
uh, get some consequences on that. There is part of us that, that is morally uh, satisfied by seeing somebody get their desserts, particularly somebody who has done evil in our eyes. We, we, the consequences are good. We like that. We like that. There is kind of a morally ambivalent ground where somebody makes a mistake and there are consequences. I, I will admit, you will think less of me maybe, but there are times when I walk through a parking lot and I see that somebody has left their lights on and I know they're gonna get consequences, and in my, there's a little part of my brain, it's not, it's not a nice part, but there's a little part of my brain that kind of says, oh well, too bad for them, consequences. Dead battery. Not very nice, is it? But, you know, when it's somebody else's consequences, it's easier for us to say, well, that makes sense, that's just what happens, too bad for them. It will bother us in some cases, it will be morally complicated when we realize that people who didn't directly contribute to the consequences suffer them nonetheless. Again, environmental degradation, animals, the poor, right? Um, but we also understand that in some situations at least, a proper relationship with loved ones involves allowing them to experience appropriate consequences. It's true in my experience of parenting, you have to, it has to be appropriate, right? Uh, a two-year-old who wanders into traffic will experience consequences, that would be disproportionate, right? We don't allow that, we don't allow two-year-olds to wander into traffic, but a four-year-old who drops their ice cream cone do they get another one? Ooh, mixed opinions out here. <laughs> In my vote, no. They need to learn consequences. If they have been careless, I mean, if I bumped into them and they dropped the ice cream cone, that's different, but if they've been careless, they need to know that once the ice cream hits the ground, there's no more ice cream. I'm not gonna pay for more ice cream. You may have different examples. <laughs> But sometimes, the best thing we can do for our children is to allow them to endure appropriate consequences and to learn lessons, right? If the child doesn't finish their homework, do we appeal to the teacher, oh, 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 she was so busy, there's all these things going on, there's, or do we keep them home from school, or do we all these things to avoid the terrible, awful consequences of a... Sometimes sometimes allowing consequences is a sign of love. It is way more complicated with the kind of consequences that Isaiah is facing, and I wouldn't pretend otherwise. I guess if we're going to think about the essence of prophetic material, one of the things we have to recognize is the prophets deliver news that is not easy. They frequently are offering a word that is hard to hear about things that are hard to endure. What is true of the, general, uh, the Bible in general is particularly true of the prophets in that it is comfort for the afflicted, but it is absolutely affliction for the comfortable. It rattles the foundation. I've told this story before of a woman who came to me years and years ago who uh, had, had just had a lot of stuff going on in her life, terrible things going on in her life, including consequences that were disproportionate, right? 
mistakes that she had made that had consequences that we would think, you would probably think, were way beyond uh, uh, the level of appropriate consequences. And she had done that thing that people sometimes do, is like, I'm going to look for an answer someplace, I'm going to just flip open the Bible and put my finger down and uh, see where it lands, and maybe that'll be God's message for me. And she had landed somewhere near this in Isaiah, where it was just, and it just made her feel worse, right? Well, what we did is we turned over to chapter 40, where it says, comfort, comfort my people and speak unto them about the end of their consequences. And we begin to share with one another and to bring other people into the conversation about how she could begin to remove herself from situations where her consequences were unduly harsh. The, the word comes to comfort those who are afflicted. But it comes to afflict those who are comfortable. And the truth in life is that most of us are a mixture. Most of us are a mixture of people who have afflictions that need comfort and who have comforts that need affliction. The prophets are the ones by whom those things come in rather dramatic fashion. Early in his ministry, Jesus used that very line from Isaiah to explain why he taught in parables. Everything comes in parables in order that, this will sound familiar, they may look but not perceive, listen but not understand, so that they may not turn and be forgiven. Jesus uses that very line. In this case, I think a little bit different. He uses parables, perhaps, I think, because he doesn't want understanding to be too easy and too quick. He wants to invite people in. A story invites people in, gets people to work with a lesson a little bit, gets people to own the lesson a little bit. If the message is just this, then it can turn people off, right? It's obvious, it's clear, but it's distancing. A story may not be clear, but it becomes an invitation to work the muscles of discernment, to begin to learn how to perceive. Not just to get a message, but to get the ability to perceive a message. And so there is, in being a prophet, in being a Messiah, the invitation to learn how to perceive to learn how to see and to hear from a perspective larger than our own. Those are good muscles to develop. Yeah? 